You're listening to a Centro Church podcast. So this morning, I thought maybe what we should do is preach from the Bible today. What do you reckon? Yeah, preach from, this is a pretty good place to start, isn't it? And um, actually this morning, I want to start a new mini-series looking at one of the books in the Bible. And uh, the Bible is this amazing collection of books that show us who we are as humans, right? At the start of the book, we see God creating and pouring himself in us and we're created in the, in, in the image of God. But then the book takes us on this journey of how sometimes we distort this image. And then at the very end of the book, there's this book that I wanna talk about today and so the next few weeks, unpacking. See, the Bible is a book for humans that deals with human things like war and stress and sexuality and history and desire and health and fear and loss and transcendence and money and grace and slavery and doubt and sorrow and death and life. All this exists within the pages of this book. Then at the very end of it, somebody or a guy named John thought that it'd be necessary to write a letter to seven churches in Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey today, about present events back then and future events back then and that may happen in time. At the end of the book, we get to a book called Revelation. The reason that this book is called Revelation is because the word revelation simply means to reveal, to reveal Jesus. And this book is unreal and sometimes sounds less like a Bible book and more like a prequel to a Lord of the Rings trilogy kind of saga, right? Other books are easy to preach about because in other books, there's easy topics like Christian doctrine and Christian worldview and faith and prayer and equality and behavior. But this book, the book of Revelation, talks about things like dragons and horse locusts with human heads and fire-breathing trees and zombies, and monsters, and Indiana Jones type booby traps, and all this end of the world type imagery, which by the way, we love, right? Because Hollywood makes millions and millions of dollars every year when they bring out the end of the world movies that we'll go and watch. And in this book, there's, it's the story of this one little lamb that amidst of all this chaos and confusion ends up saving the world. But even before we get to all that imagery, The writer John says this in Revelation 1.3. He says that God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church and he blesses all that listen to its message and obey what it says. And so what I wanna do over the next couple of weeks is look at this book of Revelation. I wanna unpack it for us and try and put it into our context. Understand what the writer is saying because I think there's so many questions. Questions like, why did John write this down? Why did our forefathers decide that this kind of story should be in the Bible? Why am I blessed this morning to listen to a guy named Tim talk about something a guy named John wrote 2,000 years ago about dragons, monsters and lamb chops? What is in this book this morning that is relevant to us? Are you ready? Yeah? So, disclaimer, number one. um, This morning, all the views are my own views, okay? So if you have any issues with any of my doctrines or theologies, please email us at bturner at centrochurch.com.au. B. Turner will gladly take all of your questions. He will even come to your house to talk about 
revelatory eschatological doctrines, okay? He, will, he loves that stuff. <laughs> this morning, what I want to do is I want to split our, our next half an hour in half. I want to kind of do like a lecture. Why was Revelation written, okay? I, I, I want to give us context, okay? Give us an overview of the book, and then we'll preach, okay? And then we'll put the book into context for us today. So, the first thing that we need to know about the book of Revelation is context. Context is everything. On October 30 in 1938, the New York Times released this report about hundreds, uh, about thousands and thousands of people fleeing, this, uh, uh, fleeing US cities. H.G. Wells had just released his classic drama called War of the World on radio. And at the start of the story, they had told everyone listening that this is a drama and a story. It's fiction. But they broadcast it in, the, in a matter that it was a news bulletin. And so what happened was people who had tuned in to the story halfway through it didn't know that it was just a story. They thought it was the actual news. And so what happened was people started evacuating their houses. Thousands and thousands of people in Los Angeles, thousands and thousands of people across the US were evacuating the city because they literally thought aliens were invading from Mars, right? This happened. Context is everything. Understanding and knowing genre of communication within Scripture is just as important as knowing if aliens are invading from Mars or not. The Bible was written by real people in real places facing real problems, just like you and me, just in a different context. So first, let's bring this book into context. What is happening in John's world for him to write this? John wrote this book on an island called Patmos. The reason that he was on Patmos, according to church tradition, was that the guy who was the emperor of the Roman Empire at that stage was a guy named Emperor Domitian. And he didn't like Christians. We'll get into that in just a moment. But church history says that he threw John into a boiling pot of oil. But nothing happened to John. And so it freaked him out as it would. And so instead of trying to kill him because he couldn't, he just exiled him onto the island of Patmos. Because Emperor Domitian and the Roman Empire, the imperial cult, didn't want these Christians talking about this Jesus for two reasons. Number one, according to the, to the imperial cult, there was only one Lord and Saviour. There was only one man that would bring peace and goodwill to all mankind. And there was only one son of God, Caesar. Caesar was that. But these Christians start preaching about this new Lord and Saviour. They start preaching about this new guy who's going to bring peace and goodwill to earth, to all mankind. They start preaching about this new son of God and his name is Jesus Christ. Empire only wants one thing and that's power. Once you take power from them, they don't like you anymore and they want to kill you. So that's the first reason why we see in Revelation this mass persecution of the church by Emperor Domitian. The second reason that John writes this because of persecution is because in John's day, people saw human circumstance simply as what was mirrored in the heavens. The idea was this, that if the gods are at war, then we're at war. If the gods are at peace, then we're at peace. There was no understanding in the ancient world of free will like we understand it. What happens up there happens down here. So if we want good things to happen up there, then down here we have to offer things down here for those up there to keep them happy. And if up there is happy, then down here is happy. This is where the whole idea of ancient sacrifice comes from. It's to keep the gods happy. 
And so if something goes wrong down here, then something must have gone wrong up there, which meant that someone down here must have have offended those that were up there. And so whenever bad things happen down here, bad things were bad happening up there, someone must have offended it. We have to find out who that person is and get rid of them because we need the gods to be happy to make things on earth happy. A guy by the name of Paul starts preaching this idea that life in its circumstances has nothing to do with the gods, but everything to do with number one, finding Jesus and then living a holy life through the power of Christ, this new son of God. And Paul says that Jesus wants us to live differently to the world around us. So, for example, the Roman family table. Let's go to the Roman family for a moment. A lot of Paul's sermons were in what we call house churches, right? Because the church was very small. And so Paul would have been speaking in the Roman family table at the dinner table. Now, the Roman household was built just like the empire, right? The Roman household was a mirror of the Roman empire. The father would always sit at the head of the house. He was the boss, no one else sat there. Whoever was sitting at his right hand and at his left hand were the next in power, right? They were the next in power of the family. And then from there on down, right down to the very end of the table was the power structure of the family. The Roman household was simply a picture of the Roman Empire. Usually, females in the household were down the end. Children never sat at the table. And certainly slaves never were even in the family room during dinner. But then Ephesians 5 comes and Paul does something crazy. He begins addressing the household and turning everything upside down. In Ephesians 5, we see Paul say, um, wives, submit to your husbands. Now, that's a whole different sermon. But the fact that Paul first addresses females, that is huge. That's massive. You never went into a guy's household and talked to his wife first. You didn't do that. You talked to the man of the house because the man of the house is the emperor of his empire, right? But Paul begins addressing women first. He tells the men to love their wives and share equal status. Paul in Ephesians 6 addresses children. So Paul is now bringing children to the family table. Paul in Ephesians 6, 5 addresses slaves at the table. Paul is now bringing slaves out from the room into the family table. He's changing how the family functions. He says, girls, you have equal status. He says, guys, the girls have equal status. He says, children, you're allowed to sit here now. He says, slaves, work for your masters as if you're working for the Lord and masters treat your slaves as humans. Now, this was a huge thing. A lot of New Age atheists hammer the Bible on this whole idea that the Bible promotes slavery. And if you don't understand context, you can see that. For instance, there's this book in the Bible called Philemon. Philemon is written by Paul to a rich guy who's in the church in Ephesus. And Philemon has a slave called, what's the guy's name, Brett? Onesiphorus, Onesiphorus, right? The guy runs away from Philemon ends up finding Paul becomes a Christian. Paul writes a letter back to Philemon and says, hey, your slave's gonna come back to you, but you have to treat, you have to forgive him and treat him like a human. Now, a lot of people say, oh, the Bible condones slavery. No, 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 no. You gotta understand, if Paul was to go into the ancient world and say, hey, we no longer believe in slavery, it would have got him killed. 
That's treason. So you have to understand, today we have trucks, we have tractors, we have trains, we have planes that do all the work for us. We have computers. Back in the ancient day, there was no such thing like that. There were slaves. Slaves were the ones who worked on the farms. Slaves were the ones who looked after the household. Slaves were the ones who built all the roads, right? Slavery built Rome. In fact, one third of the Roman population were slaves. 60 million people in Rome, 20 million slaves. It was just a part of life. But what Paul does is he begins the emancipation of slavery by telling the family, hey, these people aren't biological tools anymore. They are real human beings. They are real people. And so Paul, when he is addressing slaves at the table, he's flipping the whole Roman culture upside down and saying, hey, even the lowest of society is now allowed at your table. That's what Paul's saying. And so everyone in Rome is now watching how these Christians are painting a different picture of what the empire is and it believes. And then things start going wrong in Rome. Now, what happens when things start going wrong in Rome? What it means is the gods and things must be going wrong with the gods. If things are going wrong with the gods, then somebody down here must have offended them. Who are they? And then emperors and philosophers and just people in the public start talking about these Christian people who are doing things weird. They're weird. Their women have equal status in, in, the, in, in the home. Their children are at the family table. These people treat their slaves like one of the family. They are so anti-Roman, so anti-culture. It must be them who are offending the gods. And so Christians in ancient Rome begin being persecuted, being killed, because number one, they have a different Lord and Saviour, not the emperor. And also, they start doing things that are anti-culture and people start accusing them that they must be the ones who are offending the gods. And so John writes this book, Revelation, of who Je- about, about Jesus, but more importantly, who Jesus wants us to be, to a people group who are being tormented, tortured, abused, killed, cast out, looked down upon, hopeless, helpless, running out of time and anxious. And to the, to the degree of persecution that they're facing in the book of Revelation, John uses that same degree of intensity with these imagery and symbolism. That's why in the book of Revelation, we see all these crazy characters because with violent persecution there needs to be violent hope right there needs to be uh, uh, intensity with imagery and symbolism why is it that when we're with someone who's battling cancer we use the imagery of war we say that they're fighting cancer that they're battling cancer you don't sit at the bedside and say well you know life is like a box of chocolates you never know what you're gonna get It doesn't have that same intensity, does it? Right? Because context is everything. And so can you imagine, there's a church of around 7,000 people at the time that John writes this, in an empire of 6 million hunting them. Can you see that they need a strong sense of hope right now? There's lots of people trying to kill a small group of people. And so John writes this book as kind of like a beginner's guide to hope, 
that no matter what kind of intense persecution or torment, whether it's external or internal you have, in the end, Jesus wins. That's why Paul is writing the book of Revelation. That's why Paul is writing this. In the end, church, although the past is terrible and at the present it seems hopeless, you've got to understand I've just met with Jesus and he's told me he wins. He wins. That's why this book of Revelation is in the Bible. It's so powerful because it brings hope to hopeless situations. Now let's preach. Are you ready? So have you ever found yourself in a hopeless situation before? Three things, three things that this book gives us hope for if you're writing, if you're writing these down uh, today. Number one, what hope does the book of Revelation give us? Number one, in Jesus, we have hope of restoration in our past, in our present, and in our future. Let me explain. In the book of Revelation, in one, it says this. When I saw him, this is John talking about Jesus, seeing Jesus for the first time. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid, I am the first past and the last. Sorry, I'm the first, right, and the last. I'm the living one, present. I died, past, but look, I'm alive forever and ever. I hold the keys to death and the grave. Write down, John, what you have seen, past, both the things that are happening now, present, and things that will happen, future, right? In Jesus, we have the hope of healing and restoration in our past, present, and future. The reason that Jesus is revealed at the end of this book, right? It's very simple, right? You've got these people who, right now, they're going through present persecution. John wanted people who are presently being persecuted because of past events. Their past is telling them that presently it sucks and tomorrow's not going to get any better. But Paul says, hey, listen, church, you need to understand, I've met with Jesus, and he says that in the end, he wins. You need to understand that when you have that revelation that in the end Jesus wins, it changes how you think about things in the present. See, your past can dictate your present and shape your future. But you also need to know it works the other way around. That when your future is good, it changes how you see the present, which changes how you see the past. I met with someone this week who um, for years they had been abused and going through really bad things very badly abused and I met with them and we were talking and I said, I said to them, do you hate the person that did this to you? Like, do you hate them? And they said this, it stunned me. They said, no. I was like, what? I, I hate them just hearing the stories. How? And they said, Tim, you've got to understand that if, if I was to hate them, I would either do something terrible to them or something terrible to myself. I can't afford to hate. And at that moment, I had a revelation. I understood what it meant to, to I, I, had a, I understood what it meant to know what it was to have Jesus win in the future. Because it meant that their present circumstance changes. Even though abuse happened in the past and it should mess them up today, Given the bleak, a very bleak future, the fact that they knew Jesus, they have a good future, it changed their present idea on past circumstances, which means this, it changed how they look at their past. And so their past changed all because 
of Jesus. I'm here to tell you this morning that your past does not have to dictate your present and prophesy your future. The book of Revelation is a prophecy about the future with Jesus, which changes our present circumstance, which changes how we should see the past. The same thing can happen in your life. Maybe you're here this morning and maybe bad things have happened in your past. You know it it happened. You were there. It was written down. You can see the death and the destruction and the darkness and the decrease. And maybe even right now you're living in present circumstances or situations because of that. And your future doesn't look very, very good. I want to tell you this morning that when you say yes to Jesus, you say yes to a new future. And when you say yes to a new future, it changes your present circumstance. And when you think differently about your present circumstance, it makes you think differently about your past. The hope that we find in Jesus is that He can bring wholeness to our past, to our present and our future. We find that all in the saving grace of Jesus. Paul says this, He says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and a new life has begun. He's not saying that you forget your past. What he's saying is this, that no longer matters. He's saying that is now done, it's finished. All the effects of that, now that you have Jesus, you're starting new. That's what Paul's trying to say. It means that when you have Jesus in your life, All those times when you feel that you're surrounded by death, darkness and decrease, the things that are in your past or your present, they don't have the last word. Jesus has the last word. Amen? Amen. Come on. Number two. So why is that? Why? Number two. The second hope that we have in Jesus. Number two. In Jesus, we have hope of personal connection. This is what the book of Revelation is about. It's reminding the church that in Jesus, we have the hope of personal connection. Check this out, Revelation 21, three to four says this. I heard a shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. Where does the spirit and the presence of Jesus live? It lives with us in, our, in, in his church. Right now, you gotta understand the presence of God is right here, right now. Because he lives in the presence of his church. John previously writes this. He says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. How good is that? Do you remember at school, when the bell went, we all ran out to play sports, remember? And uh, you get to the group of kids and you're about to play sports, but you know, you need to pick teams. And so you always choose the best two people of that sport. Now, where I went to school, basketball was the thing to play. Now, I like football, right? Soccer, I think, is God's sports. And uh, amen. Amen. And United won last night. Amen. Oh, there was less of an amen there. That's right. I'll pray for you guys during the week. <laughs> And uh, you'd always choose the two best people. And so we'd come out for basketball and the two best people would get uh, picked to be captains. And then they would start choosing the next best person for their team. Every lunchtime was the same thing for me. I would be the last person chosen. Anyone else was the last person chosen here this morning in teams, right? And here's the thing, right? Even though I was the last person chosen, they never actually chose me. 
Because when it came to the next choice, they said, oh, hey, you guys can have Tim. <laughs> right? In fact, I was that bad, I got to choose my own team, right? <laughs> That's pretty, pretty cool. Right? John 15, you didn't choose me, I chose you, gives people like me hope. Because it tells me this. It tells me that Jesus didn't come to the world and say, okay, guys, I'm choosing my team. Uh, I'm going to have, uh, gonna have uh, the Diefenbach family. Where are they? Yep, Diefenbachs. Uh, I'm going to have... Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have Tim and Natalia. Tim and Natalia, yep, we'll see you guys. Yep, you're on my team. Uh, I'm going to have uh, Peter and Rochelle. Yeah, uh, everyone else, good luck. <laughs> Jesus didn't do that, right? He comes and he says, listen, I'm going to live with you. I'm going to be with you. I choose you. Listen, you need to know that you're not the only person on your team. You need to know that. You're not the only person on your team team but Jesus's home is among you it's in you he lives in your circumstances he lives in the situation he lives in your need he is on your side Psalm 34 says this the righteous person faces many troubles but the Lord comes to the rescue each time you know there was a time where Isaac found himself tied to an altar ready to be killed but then God came to his rescue there was a time where Gideon was scared and hid in a wine press, but then God came to his rescue. There was this one time where David was facing an insurmountable odd, but God came to his rescue. There was this one time where Paul found himself shipwrecked, but God came to his rescue. There was this one time where Jesus found himself dead for three days, but God came to his rescue. You need to know that whatever circumstances you find yourself in, where you feel like you're tied up, or you feel like you're up against a giant, or you're hiding in a wine press, or you're busted, broken, and shipwrecked, there is one person amidst all that chaos and confusion uh, and all those things that life throws at you that can rescue you, that can restore you, that can redeem you, that can can give you hope when hope seems hopeless. His name is Jesus. You can experience Jesus every single day because he lives with you. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, you get to encounter Jesus every single day. No longer do you need to be lonely. No longer do you need to be helpless? No longer do you need to be hopeless, but Jesus is with you. Which leads us to our last thought this morning. In Jesus, we have hope that the King has one more move. Revelation 20 says this, when a thousand years comes to an end, Satan will be let out of his prison. He will go out to, the, to deceive the nations called Gog and Magog. He would gather them together for battle, but fire from heaven came down on, attack, on the attacking armies and consumed them. Then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. How cool, I'm gonna wait for the movie, right? It sounds pretty cool. Okay, two things here. Gog and Magog, pretty funky names. Um, lots of people throughout the ages have tried to put modern day names to these names, right? Um, Gog in the Hebrew simply means antichrist what it means right so Gog in scripture means Antichog uh, means Antichrist Magog means a nation of Antichrist or the culture of Antichrist is another way to um, say it a lot of people have tried to put real you know Vladimir Putin he's the Antichrist you know something like that but when you put these two names in context to scripture 
Gog and Magog are usually defined as anyone or anything that is not of God and not the righteousness of God. When you put it in context of every other time it's used in Scripture, it's anything in our life that comes to attack the original design. It's anything that we allow into our life that comes to take away the real, the, the right way that God had intended us to live. Another way to, another word to use for Gog and Magog is sin. That's another good word to use, right? Anything that separates us from God is antichrist. Because if Christ is the one that brings us to God, anything that cuts that connection, that is anti-Christ. Anything in your life right now that is distracting you or keeping you from God, they're the antichrist things in your world. And John is writing this to the church and saying, hey, listen, there's things and circumstances that, uh, circumstances that, that, that are gonna happen in your world they're gonna, gonna keep you from God. But you need to know that those things don't win in the end. He's writing to a church who it looks like they're being surrounded by antichrist and the culture of antichrist. And but John says, hey, you need to understand, the king has one more move. The king has one more move. There's this story of this guy called Paul Morphy. There was a guy by the name of Moritz Rich who painted this painting called Checkmate. Can we throw that painting up? And this guy did this painting called Checkmate. And the painting depicted the devil on the left playing mankind in a game of chess. And the devil has man at checkmate. Mankind is about to lose to the devil. I wonder if you've ever felt like you're about to lose. This guy by the name of Paul Morphy went to his friend's house for dinner and his friend had this painting up in his wall. And after supper, he was admiring this painting and looking. And his friend came up to him and said, what do you think? And he said, oh, it looks cool. He said, but I think I could take this game and I think I could give the king one more move. I think I could beat the devil. And the guy says, no, you can't, it's checkmate. Like what it's called, the painter, the devil wins. And Paul Morphy, he said, no, no, I think I can beat him. And so he puts the, the chessboard out and sets up the, sets up all of the things and starts playing this game out. People that, that were at the house come around and watch Paul as he beats the devil. The king had one more move. Nobody saw it, but Paul did. The king in the picture had one more move. You know, I'm here to tell you this morning that you might be going through some hard things right now, but you need to know that the book of Revelation gives us hope that the king has one more move. It might seem right now that you're surrounded by what is just death, darkness and decrease, but I'm here to tell you that the king of light, life and increase has one more move in your life. Maybe you're here this morning and it feels like that health issues are just surrounding and clouding you. I'm here to tell you, the king has one more move. I'm here to tell you, that maybe you feel depressed or, or anxious. I'm here to tell you that when you say yes to Jesus and find Him in your life, it allows the King to have one more move. Maybe here you have a dead dream. Maybe you're believing for something and for so long you haven't seen it and it's just hurting on the inside. I'm here to tell you that in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, it gives the King one more move. All we need to do is just say yes to Jesus. That's all we need. The book of Revelation is an introduction. It's a dummy's guide to hope. 
that even in the hopeless situations, Jesus wins. Jesus wins. The book of Revelation is so much more than this end of the world prophecy. In fact, I wanna say this, the book of Revelation is not so much about the end of the world and more about, hey church, you can bring heaven to earth. That's what this book's about. It's not about quick everyone pray, pray the prayer to get into heaven so that when Jesus comes, we all get there and everyone else, you know, they go to hell. It's not about that. John is writing to a persecuted church and saying, hey guys, it looks like we're surrounded. We're not, I've seen Jesus, we win. So it means this, get your head up. You have a job to do. We are to bring hope to a hopeless situation. Come on, Rochelle. (laughs) The book of Revelation, it's a call to arms, church. It's a call to arms for us. It's a call to arms to fight everything in Ipswich that is anti-Christ. Not fighting a person, right? We're not fighting uh, somebody, right? We're, We're fighting the enemy. Principalities and powers, the Bible says. Anything that is, is, is causing people to be distracted from Jesus, that's our job. Revelation is a call to arms. It's a call to hope. Here's a thought. In your context right now, whether it's in your school, in your workplace, in your uni, in your house, what can you do that brings Jesus into situations? I'll tell you what, Jesus is standing at the door and He's knocking. He's waiting for someone to invite him into that situation. He lives there. He wants to be involved. All we need to do is open that door and let Jesus in. Tell you what, as we do that, not only our lives are going to be blessed, which is what John says, whoever listens to this and does what it says will be blessed. As we let Jesus into our circumstances, we're blessed. Let me tell you, as we're blessed though, the Bible says that pours it out. It means that everyone around you is gonna be blessed just for knowing you because you have Jesus in your world, amen? Who wants to see this year God do some good things through them? You know what? I'm a little bit tired of reading praise reports of other people. (laughs) I want my name on some of them. I wanna see God doing some good things through me. Let me encourage you. Hear the call to hope. Hear the call to arms this year. Open the door for Jesus in your life. Open the door for Jesus into other people's lives. And I tell you what, you're gonna find God do some amazing things in you and through you. Maybe here this morning and maybe for the first time you've heard about this God that isn't up there, but He's actually down here. You've heard about this God that isn't so much interested in what you can give to Him. He's just interested in that He wants you to open the door for Him. He wants to come to you. In fact, He sacrificed Himself for you. Jesus died on the cross. Jesus was the first God to ever give His own life for His people. No other God did that. Jesus did that. Thank you for listening to this podcast. 